Grace and peace to you all today. I'm going to tell you how I prepare for sermons. This is exciting. You're going to love this. When I prepare for a sermon, the first thing I do is I lay out a sermon calendar. I have a calendar that runs between 3 and 12 months, depending on what point of the year we're in. I always want to be planned at least three months out what it is that I'm going to speak about. And then as we get closer to the date that I'm going to use that particular material, I, I suss out what exactly series, how do these come together, how do these messages fit into one piece. So for the last four weeks we've been working on this series about questions we have about God, and starting next week we're going to start talking about what it means when God is calling us in different ways. So I start the series planning one to three months out where I'm starting to gather material for those series, and I do the graphics and the signs and all that. And then I do a sermon plan. I start working on ideas and outlines for a specific sermon between two and four weeks ahead of time where I start gathering all the pieces and putting them together. And then I do my sermon writing the week ahead. So I spend the whole week before Sunday working on that one Sunday. And uh, I try to get everything down. And then one or two days ahead of actually speaking, I, I put together a manuscript or notes so that I have in front of me what I'm going to talk about. Because as you all know, if I don't have my notes in front of me, I would kind of go off on tangents. And the next thing you know, we've been here for an hour and a half, and I'm still talking. <laughs> one, one uncomfortable moment of laughter over here. <laughs> Everyone else is like, yep, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the day before I come to preach, I, I like to read through whatever I've written, all my notes or all my manuscripts. I like to read through and make sure that what I'm going to say doesn't sound stupid. Because sometimes the stuff that looks good on the page is idiotic when it comes out of your mouth. So you want to make sure that the two things are connected so that what I'm saying is going to mean something, not just be words from the page. And then the day before... I sit down for about an hour and I create the slideshow and pick the the music and all that. And this week, as I sat down to work out uh, Nehemiah chapter 8 and what we were going to talk about today, there was so much interesting stuff. It was so fascinating, all the different things about this section. I had three different trains of thought running down different tracks. They, They converged, I promise. And I I had these diverse ideas and illustrations coming from all over. Everything from Martin Luther King quotes to riots around the world to Bible translations to arguments about polytonic versus monotonic ancient Greek theology. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? And it sounds crazy, but when I looked at it, it all came together. All the pieces fit together, and I thought, this is perfect. And I sat down yesterday and I did my reread, where I read through everything. And I read through all of it and I said, I can't, I can't preach this. I may not have missed the point of the passage, but I buried it in all the rest of this junk. How many people even know what a polytonic language is? I didn't! I had to find that, looking up other stuff. So today, instead of giving you a carefully plotted out sermon that took me months to create just perfectly, I'm going to just tell you a story. And I'm going to share a couple of thoughts about it. This story starts a long time ago, back in the day. Israel, at one point, was all one country. 
Back under uh, uh, King David, he united all these tribes, got them all together in one country. But not long after him, it split into two parts. The northern kingdom was Israel, the southern kingdom was Judah. Don't worry, there's no test on this. Now that northern kingdom, Israel, they kind of lost their way. Um, See, the temple where they all went to worship God, that was in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was in Judah. And when the two countries weren't getting along, the kings didn't really like it that people went from one country to the other, even if it was to worship. And so the kings in Israel, they set up idols. They set up their own places that people would go worship. They said, you're still worshiping the same God, just now he looks like this golden cow. And they made statues of a golden cow, and they put them up in different places. And they said, go worship there, go worship there. Don't go to Jerusalem anymore. And God said, come back. And he sent prophets to go and talk to them. said, come back to me, come back to me. Stop worshiping idols. Come back and worship the true God. But the people in Israel refused. And that's when the Assyrians came. The Assyrians came, and the people in Israel called on their idols, help, save us from the armies that are invading. And the Assyrians marched right through them like they were nothing. Because apparently cow statues can't save you from invading armies like the real God can. It was a total fail. They were invaded and over 20 years they were utterly destroyed. Utterly destroyed. Now the southern kingdom, Judah, you think they would have learned from the mistakes of their, their sister. But they didn't. They didn't. For a little while, they clung to God a little bit better, but they also started worshiping idols, started ignoring the true God for the ones that they made. Apparently, the gods we make do things that we like. The God that we didn't make actually asks us to live up to our responsibilities. We don't always like that. 125 years after their northern neighbors were destroyed, Babylon invaded Judah They took the people into exile in 597 B.C. Again, no test, don't worry. And for ten years they lived under the oppression of Babylon. And then a king said, I'm going to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor of Babylon. I'm going to show him who's boss. And he did such a great job that Nebuchadnezzar brought his army back to Jerusalem again and besieged it. And completely cut the people off from everything in the world around them. They were sealed up so tight that they were scavenging for food. There was nothing left to eat. If you want to know how bad it was, you can look in Scripture and it tells you that it was two pieces of silver to buy a cup of soup made from pigeon dung. How many of you have enjoyed a cup of pigeon dung soup? Anyone? Seventy-five pieces of silver for a skull of a donkey. Yeah, yeah. No, one, no one wants to pay for that? Yeah. The people suffered. The people starved. And mothers started to eat their children. Literally. All hope was completely lost. And you think... At some point, someone would have said, wait a minute, we have a God who can deliver us, who can give us victory. But you know what? They still didn't turn back to God. They still prayed to their cow statues, to the trees, not to God. When the city fell, Nebuchadnezzar had its walls pulled down. He had the temple utterly destroyed. 
The people he killed, he piled up in the valley of Hinnom outside the city where their bodies piled so deep and so heavy that the pressure, like any compost pile, actually started fire. And that valley burned for years under the weight of the corpses and the trash from the city. And the very few remaining people Nebuchadnezzar took, he gathered up, he took into captivity, and he brought to different parts of his empire so they would not have their homeland anymore. The prophet Jeremiah, writing about this horrible day, said this in Lamentations, said, The Lord has rejected his altar and abandoned his sanctuary. He's given the walls of her palaces into the hands of the enemy, and they have raised a shout in the house of the Lord as on the day of an appointed festival. He said, My eyes fail from weeping. I'm in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed, because children and infants faint in the streets of the city. And by faint, he means die. Then almost 50 years passed. Over those 50 years, Jerusalem remained in ruins. It was abandoned. No one there but a handful of scavengers, people who had nowhere else to go. And during that time, Babylon fell. The Persians came, took over Babylon. And the Persians, they were open to the idea of letting some of the remaining Israelites go back to their homeland. A homeland that the people who were alive at that point didn't really know on their own. They knew from stories of their, their parents and their grandparents. What they knew at that point was that they had lost everything. But they didn't really know what everything was. They'd lost it so completely that they didn't really know how to recover it. It's not that people hadn't brought some of the ideas and some of the teachings and some of the the wisdom with them, but after 50 years, they were so immersed in Babylonian culture that to reclaim their own was just something they didn't even really know. As a nation, when they were invaded, they had numbered in the millions, but now only 42,000 were going to be returned. Only 42,000. Now, rebuilding the temple took a long time. That was the first thing they decided to do when they got there. They spent a year just rebuilding the altar to do sacrifices, and then the next year they spent rebuilding the foundations of the temple. And they started building and stopped building and started again. And finally, that building, the temple, it was finished and it was rededicated 70 years after it had been destroyed. And then more time passed. Another 60 years went by. The city was still mostly in ruins, even though there was a temple and there were some houses rebuilt up around it. And a man named Ezra came. He was sent by the Persians to reestablish the government to set up a whole system of laws, criminal procedures, both civil and religious, to to rebuild people's idea of what it meant to be a city and not just a place. Now Ezra, he was a priest. He knew the law of Moses really well, and he was devoted to teaching it to the people. And he began some reforms, but the people weren't united. They were all going in different directions. And so he managed to do one or two things, but he really kind of got stuck. And ten more years went by. Ten years. So we had 70 years, 60 years, 10 years. We're at 140 years. And then to unite the city, another man was sent. A guy named Nehemiah. 
Nehemiah came to rebuild the walls. In order to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem, he had to get everyone to work together, everyone in the entire city. Now, there was a problem with that because the people didn't get along with each other. There was a group of people who were very wealthy, and they took advantage of the people who were very poor. They oppressed them, they taxed them, they charged them interest on loans in order to pay the taxes they needed to pay to keep from losing their land back to the overlords. There were other people who just didn't like other people, and so they said, well, our group is over here, and we're going to be here in our own area and take care of our own people, and the rest of you are on your own. And Nehemiah said, we can't, we can't do this. We have to work together. If we don't work together, these walls don't go up because it's not just us in this city who need these walls. The people outside need us not to have them so that they can keep coming in and raiding us. They can keep coming in and taking our stuff. They can keep coming in and accusing us of not being united. So Nehemiah jumped on those who were taking advantage of others. He called out people who acted in their own interests instead of the interests of the community. He said, you are not doing what the Lord God instructed us to do. He said, you need to understand. God said, this is the way we live together, and together we are stronger. As a community, we are one. As individuals, we are nothing. And he convinced them. He convinced them all that they needed to work together, at least for a little while. And a little while is all it really took, because when he got everyone to work together, the people rebuilt the walls quickly. It says in Nehemiah 6.15 that the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul, 52 days after it was started. Less than two months, they rebuilt this whole wall around this giant city in less than two months. And they did it by working together. Everyone was assigned a section to rebuild. And they got to a certain point. And they stopped and they looked at it and they realized that they were actually doing a really good job. And they can finish. They finished building the wall. And then they rebuilt all the gates. And 52 days after they started, they realized by working together, they had actually built something. Five days after they finished the wall... Something else happened. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. It says, All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. That was the name of the gate, if you were curious. And there they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So what happened? They had godly leaders who taught them to work together who gave praise to the Lord for his blessings. And when they did that, they got the attention of the people and the people started saying, what did we lose? How is it that these guys know which direction to go? What have we lost? We want to know what we lost. We want to know this God that you're telling us about. We want to know what his teachings are because if they helped us do this impossible thing, what else could we accomplish if we just learned about him? If we just lived life the way God instructed us to, what more could we do if we actually knew the, God, the Word of God? And so they came together outside the gate. They said, we need you to bring out the books. Read us from the books. We want to hear the words themselves. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand 
And he read it aloud from daybreak until noon as he faced the square before the water gate and in the presence of the men and women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. And the seventh month is the beginning of their civil year. So this is essentially a new year. The first day of the new year, they say, we want a new life. We want a new life that's based on what God said. Men and women and children who are old enough to understand were all gathered together. They wanted to hear what was being read. They wanted to hear what God had said to his people in the past. And Ezra opened the book, and all the people could see him because he was standing above them, and he opened it, and all the people stood up. And all the people stood up. All right, you don't really have to stand up. That's all right. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen, which means truth. Make it so. And then they all bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This is before anything was even read. The people start by praising God. They recognize, look, there's something here. And they want to know more, and they want to know how they're supposed to respond And they don't really know, but they haven't been living in a vacuum while they were in exile. They were still priests. There were still teachers. The people still knew they were the people of God. They just didn't know what that meant anymore. They'd kept as many of their traditions as they could. But even though God was known to them, the law, the covenant, that contract they had with the Lord that established them as his people, they they didn't really know that. They didn't understand it. And so for five hours, from sunrise until noon, they stood and they listened while the law was read to them. Five hours in the sun, by the way. And these are not a patient people. In the book of Nehemiah, if you read through it, there's a point where they're all gathered together to have this really important meeting about how things were going to happen. And Nehemiah starts to speak and the people are like, hold on, it looks like it's going to rain. Could we take this indoors? I don't think we're all going to fit inside. Tell you what, why don't we have another meeting next week and you can talk about it. Just like us now. Very impatient. But for five hours in the sun, they stood and they listened as Ezra and the temple workers took turns reading from the scrolls. Five hours of hearing God's word. Five hours of hearing... Well, you should probably see what they heard. See, they, that's Ezra and his crew... They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Now, do you see that phrase, making it clear? Literally, it means translating. They were translating what was there. See, the law was in Hebrew. The people didn't speak Hebrew anymore. It was something that they lost. 150 years of being in exile in Babylon, they didn't speak Hebrew. They lost their language They spoke Aramaic. Aramaic was the language of Babylon and Persia. It was the language of the common person. So what was happening here is one temple worker would stand up and read, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohim, Adonai Had. And another would translate it and say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And another person would stop everyone and say, Okay, do you get it? Do you understand what this means? It means there is only one God, and the God we worship is that one. Do you get it? 
they wanted people to understand what it meant because the book of the law is full of all these instructions about how to live in community as the people of God. It explains how to live the way God created us to live. That's what the people are looking for. They want to understand how it works so they can try it out. And if it works, they might keep doing it. So these people, this remnant of ancient Israel, the people of God, they had forgotten what they knew. And what they knew, they didn't understand. And what they had understood, they hadn't bothered to apply for generations. So now they're hearing God's word fully for the first time in their lives. And when they heard it, they were absolutely horrified by what they were hearing. They couldn't believe it. It was terrible. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Please stop crying. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Hearing God's word had just devastated them. How far they'd fallen. How distant they'd become to have been separated from God for so long and then to hear how they're supposed to be living together, caring for one another, respecting the ways of the Lord, all the things that they have not been doing. It broke them. It broke their hearts. A long time later, the Apostle Paul had come along and he told us the purpose of the law. It's from Romans chapter 3, verse 20. He said, No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The law is there to, to remind us of the ways that we, we don't live up to the expectations that God has for us. That's kind of uncomfortable. And these people, they sat and they heard and they understood the words of the law and they realized just how far they'd fallen. They realized how disconnected they were from what God had intended. They heard the law. They saw how they had failed. And that is all they saw. That's what got stuck for them. They saw all the ways they'd screwed up. They saw all the things that tarred their record, essentially. They began to weep tears of regret. They began to weep tears of shame. Tears that recognized they'd failed to live up to the standards of God, even though God was restoring them to the glory of a faithful people. They had been unfaithful, but God was still reaching out to them. They weren't a faithful people. They were sinners. And they were afraid of what that meant. We haven't kept the covenant. What does that mean? Do you know why they were afraid? Because they were missing the point. They were completely missing the point. That's why Ezra and Nehemiah are so quick to tell them this isn't a day for mourning. This is supposed to be a day for celebration. Nehemiah said, go, enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to people who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve. The joy of the Lord is your strength. This is a day for rejoicing. You're supposed to be cheerful. You're hearing this and you're getting hung up on the things that are not the things that matter. Here's the point. It's not about coming to God in perfection. Not a single one of us has the power to change anything that's come before. 
None of us can change anything that's come before. You can't even change what you ate for breakfast this morning. What matters is that we turn towards God. Look, they've been in exile 150 years. They haven't done things the right way all the time. We live our lives. Sometimes we live our lives with God. Sometimes we live our lives apart from God. When we've lived apart from God, you can't fix that. But if you turn towards God and learn to know and understand Him, that's great news. That's something to celebrate. It doesn't matter where you think you're at. You might be saying, no, no, you don't know how far gone I am. You don't know how unforgivable I am. Man, my first Salvation Army Corps I went to a long time ago now. There was a guy in our men's group. He lived in a truck uh, parked in our parking lot most of the time. And we asked him to read scripture one Sunday. And I don't even remember which psalm it was. He was reading from the psalms. And he got about halfway through. It was something about God loving and caring. And he just broke down in tears. He started crying. He couldn't finish his reading. And I went and I sat with him. And I said, what, what's going on, John? And he said... You don't understand. I read all this about forgiveness, but God can't forgive me. I said, what do you mean? He said, you don't understand the things that I've done in my life. The things that I've done in my life are completely unforgivable. There's no way that God's forgiveness extends to someone like me. God can't forgive me for the things that I've done. I had to say, look, John, Get over yourself! You're not that special! I don't care what you think you've done. And I can point to Scripture to back this up. Look, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many people here are part of all? Raise your hand if you're part of all. That's all of you. If you were curious. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us is as good as God created us to be. You know what? That's why it's a celebration every time someone turns back to God. There is no such thing as unforgivable. There is only, what am I going to do now? What I did yesterday isn't what the point is. The point is, what am I doing now? What do I choose to do now? In Nehemiah, we see people who decide to seek God. And then they find out, in fact, that they are horrible, horrible sinners just like the rest of us. And they start to cry because they know they haven't lived up to the law. They're not the good people that they've tried to convince themselves they are. Well, I'm a good person. They've fallen short of the glory of God. And when they realized that, Nehemiah said, Rejoice! Don't grieve for your past. Stop wallowing in your self-pity. Look how God is calling you to move forward. God is calling you to be together, to be His people. Celebrate the things that God has done. Don't celebrate the things that we've screwed up. Look up. Look forward. So often we miss the point of God's Word because we get bogged down in the mud that we walked through yesterday or last week or in our youth and we ignore the clear and dry path that is ahead of us that we can take right now. That's the path that God lays out for each of us. That's the one that leads us right through that big field of joy. Joy. Do you get it? Or have you missed the point? 
so often this is me. There's the point. And there I am headed in some other direction. Over the last few weeks as we've been reading through some of these Old Testament scriptures, we have been called to wake up and see the things that God is doing. And we've seen that He is always in control. We've learned that God delights in us, in every single one of us, because He created us, and He made us to be who and what we are. He loves us right where we're at. And now we're being told we need to celebrate what God has done and what He is doing. Focus on the joy, not the junk. Spend too much time, waste too much time on the junk. What's past is past. And while you might need to make amends where people are concerned, absolutely nothing will ever keep you from God's love or forgiveness. Absolutely nothing will ever keep you from God's love or forgiveness. The joy of the Lord is our strength, and it's our reminder that we can leave the past in the past and focus on moving forward into a future with God. To go back to Paul's explanation in the Romans, he said, look, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, for the broken. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. God wants us to move forward. That's the point. We do not earn our salvation, so it doesn't matter if you think you're good enough or not. God wants you to come and receive his joy regardless of what you think. Don't get stuck in the past, but seek God and keep moving forward. You think I've said the same thing enough different ways to stick? God will meet you where you are at, and he will lead you on from there. Are you with me? That didn't sound very certain. Are you with me? If you have not made a decision to go with God, you can do that right now. You can let the joy of the Lord be your strength. If you've made that decision in your past, but you've chosen your own path and you've wandered a different way, you know what? You can choose to get back on God's path. Dry your tears. Let His celebration embrace you. That's what the point is. You can always go forward from here. You can come and pray at the altar or at the kneeling rails that are oddly placed behind me for a change. Or you can just talk to God in your seat. Just tell Him, look, I want you to lead me into this new life. I want to experience the joy. I'm going to play a song. You can take time to pray while it's playing, or you can meditate on the words of the song, or you can meditate on the way God is leading you, or you can sing at the top of your lungs with joy. Whatever it is that you want to do to connect you to how you step forward into a life with God instead of clinging to the things of the past. Find joyful celebration. And when this is done, I will close us in prayer. Father, thank you so much that you are calling us forward. Thank you that you want us to live lives steeped in joy, not stuck in muck. Thank you, Lord, that you are always standing ready to forgive us and put us back on the right path. 
I pray that not a single person leaves this room without turning their, hand, their life, their hands, their work, everything over to you to lead them in the direction that they should go, into joy and celebration. Thank you for Jesus and the example that he gave us of how to live a joyful life. Don't let anyone miss the point. In Jesus' name, amen.